Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. This week, I speak with Will Haskell, the youngest person ever elected to the Connecticut State Senate. Will talks about his decision to run for office while still in college in response to Trump's election and a call to action from President Obama. He shares his passion about the need for more representative voices in government and the opportunity he's already had to make a change from ushering free community college in his state to modernizing public transit. Will's inspiring story is the subject of a new book coming out in January, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker, which he hopes will inspire more young people to get involved in public service. Will Haskell, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. I've been so looking forward to this conversation because you have such a great story of how you got into public service. And obviously, Honorable Profession is really all about people who want to go into public service. So let's just dive right in with with how you got here. You are the youngest ever state senator in Connecticut history. You were finishing up your senior year at Georgetown when you decided to run in 2018 against, I believe, your hometown senator who'd been there literally as long as you had been alive. And so just to start with kind of what led you to decide you wanted to run for, for office? So it was an admittedly crazy decision, but it, it really started for me the morning after Donald Trump's victory. I think like a lot of people, I sort of took for granted that Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president. And I just remember uh, doom scrolling before I knew the term the morning after that election day and starting to think, well, what what can I do if if Donald Trump is going to be in the White House for the next four years? The firewall, I I guess, is going to be our state and local government. And I'm embarrassed to say, Debbie, that I didn't necessarily, I hadn't paid a ton of attention to who was representing me in my town hall and in my state capitol. So I started at the municipal level and I, I looked at my hometown of Westport, Connecticut. I figured out that the folks in town hall were doing a pretty good job. And then I looked at my state representative and it was somebody who champions the environment and champions public health, somebody who I, I really agreed with. And then I got to my state senator and it was somebody who... I disagreed with. Like you said, it was somebody who'd been in office for longer than I'd been alive. And even more problematically, somebody somebody who had voted uh, time and time again against paid family and medical leave, which was important to me because my mom, like 25% of American moms, went back to work just two weeks after giving birth. Somebody who said that Connecticut had gone too far in regulating guns after Sandy Hook, when I, I believed, and more importantly, I think almost everybody in my generation believed, or at least in this community, that we hadn't gone far enough in regulating firearms. Anyways, to make a long story short, I was I started to ask around and say, hey, who's who's running for the state Senate? Who's challenging this incumbent? And what I found out was that 
in down ballot races like this one, very often the Democrats didn't nominate anybody. And when nobody else stepped forward, I decided to try to get my name on the ballot. That's so amazing. And it's not easy to beat an incumbent who's been there for that long, who's so entrenched. I will say as a side note, I really loved your campaign was very positive. I read when I was prepping for this interview that, you know, when you were asked about her, you know, said, look, lovely person, great public servant, we just didn't agree on issues that you've laid, you know, you've laid out some of them already. So I really appreciate that piece too, that, you know, this was not somebody, you know, this was not a vitriol, vitriolic campaign. It's about where you want to take the country forward. But given that, you know, it's hard to beat an incumbent who's been there that long. What do you kind of attribute that to? First of all, you're exactly right in that she she is a wonderful person. I still see her around town all the time. We continue to disagree on some issues, uh, but you know, nevertheless, I admire anybody who makes the long trek to the state capitol for two decades. Uh, I've now only done it for two terms myself, but it's a long drive. It doesn't pay very much, and anybody who goes into this profession, I think, deserves a, a, a degree of respect and, and admiration. I attribute our victory to a few things. I got to give major credit to my college roommate who became my campaign manager. We built a bunk bed together and then built a campaign that was unconventional in every way. We Amazing. staffed our office uh, with high school students who filled beanbag chairs after school got out and uh, licked envelopes and made phone calls, but also delved into the really sort of substantive work of the campaign. They helped draft press releases. They wrote our policy platform. They sat with me and did debate prep. They, they of course, ran our social media. The high school and college students who stepped up were really I think our, our secret to victory. And why they chose to get involved in our campaign, I think, is something really simple and intuitive, which is that People want to recognize themselves and their elected officials. And right now, young people are underrepresented at every level of government, uh, whether it's a town hall or a state capitol or Congress. Policymakers every day are deciding what the next 10, 20, 50 years are going to look like. And very often they're doing so without any input from the stakeholders in that future. And that's a scary thing for our generation. We're not a monolith, but Young people, I think, recognize that climate change isn't an academic problem, but is an, instead an existential crisis. We know what it's like to worry when we hear a loud noise in the hallway about where we're going to hide in the event of the next school shooting. We know how hard it is to afford a degree in the 21st century. There are some experiences that really bring us together as a generation. And I was so grateful for their support. I really do think that's what put us over the finish line. Yeah, I love that you were able to bring out young people. And that's become something that you've talked a lot about as a elected official now, too. What about people who are thinking about running for office who are young? How do you get more people like you to, to run earlier in their careers? I, I love that word earlier, because it's so funny. I would say every two weeks, I get a call from a young person who wants to run for office one day. And they want advice, who should be my treasurer? Who should I hire to do my, you know, mailings? And what should my message be? And I don't know how to answer any of those questions, because I represent a tiny corner of a tiny state in a country where there's almost 2000 state Senate districts. So I really struggle to, um, to give people advice, except I hone in on that word one day. When they tell me to run for office one day, I, I ask them, I encourage them, I, I beg them, to be honest, to bump up their timeline. Because now that uh, I have a chance to serve my community, I've, I've gotten to sit in the rooms where decisions are made, and I've seen the urgency of these issues. We can't afford to wait for one day when they decide that, you know, they've got a 
a home and a career and a family to put on a glossy mailer. It's time for unconventional candidates to step forward because the problems we're facing as, as a community here in Connecticut, but also, of course, as a country, require a lot more urgency. You know, a, a light bulb moment for me was when President Obama said, if you're disappointed in your elected officials, grab a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office yourself. I decided to do just that. And I think a lot of young people are disappointed in their elected officials all across the country. And I think we're starting to see them pick up that clipboard and and get on the ballot themselves. Yeah, I love that about unconventional candidates. Absolutely. You you mentioned President Obama. And, and we should say, yes, you ran, decided to run actually while you were still finishing college, but you had done some internships with some people on the Hill and, you know, worked for the, for the DNC for a little while. So you had had some experience. But it, it is worth noting that, you know, as a 22 year old first time candidate, you had some pretty impressive endorsements in this campaign, including President Obama. How did that come about? Oh my gosh, uh, it lent, how it came about, I, I'll never entirely know. Um, Connecticut isn't typically a state that draws a lot of national attention, but when I ran in 2018, we were actually the only tied legislative chamber in the whole country. There were 18 Democrats and 18 Republicans. We were a district that was uh, hadn't been held by a Democrat since the 1970s, but had supported Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So I think uh, the powers that be in DC viewed this as a swing opportunity to swing a district and in doing so take control of a legislative chamber. And in the era of Donald Trump, when healthcare was on the line, when climate justice was on the line, that mattered even more. I would say what the Obama endorsement did for me in my campaign was give me credibility as I went door to door. You know, when when somebody uh, opened the door, they looked at, I, I was 22 years old. I looked about 12 years old. You know, most, if, if they knew my name, it was only because maybe I was a classmate of their, of their son or their grandson. Being able to say that President Obama had supported our campaign really gave us that credibility to talk to some older voters who were skeptical, to try to win them over on, on the train platform, talking to commuters every day who said, oh, you're that, you're that kid that my kid talks about, starting to learn about what motivates them and sort of tap into their hopes for the future as well. That all came with President Obama's endorsement. You wrote a book about this story, actually, as well, that will come out in January, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker, if I got that right. I love that you wrote that book. I love that you wrote the story down. What were you hoping to do with the book, and what kind of message did you want to send? So I decided to write this book really in response to those phone calls that I was getting from young candidates. I wanted to continue the conversation to give them some, some insights into what I'd learned, the mistakes that I'd made, so that they could do more and do better. So um, I hope that the book will be interesting to, to those who are curious about what the next chapter in American politics will look like and curious about Gen Z and, and how we vote as an electorate, but also how we vote once we're elected officials. But really, I wrote the book hoping that it will reach someone out there who's disappointed in their elected officials, who cares deeply about their community, and is thinking about running for office. Maybe they think that they don't have the, the policy know-how. Maybe they think that they don't know enough people. Maybe they worry about the fundraising. I was worried about all of those things. And I try to be really honest in this book about how running for office in some ways is easier than you expect. And then there's some unexpected challenges, things that you never would have guessed that come up along the way. And I really want to give people sort of insight into what that looks like so they better understand that elected officials, they're neither infallible, perfect policy wonks with PhDs, nor are they villains, right? I think that the media tells you that they're one or the other. Aaron Sorkin has told us that to be president of the United States, you have to, you know, take the SAT twice and get a perfect score both times and play chess while juggling a crisis in China. <laughs> and 
Fox News will tell you that Nancy Pelosi eats children for breakfast every day. And neither of those things are true, right? The, at least my experience has taught me that those who make policy at the state level are really well-intentioned, underpaid, hardworking public servants who do their best to learn about the issues by listening to their constituents and then bring those voices back to the Capitol. And if you can listen, and if you're willing to go out and knock doors and meet people, then chances are you'd be a really good legislator. And I hope that that's the takeaway from the book. Yeah, I love that. I can't wait to read it. I only wish it was coming out in December because it would be a good Christmas present, but we will uh, wait till January. You can pre-order it though, right? You can pre-order it and leave someone yes. in someone's yeah, stocking. It can say coming soon or something. So <laughs> it's a good that, idea for That's people. exactly right. It's available for pre-order and then out on January 18th. And I'm so excited to get it into the hands of, uh, of folks who are interested in politics. And, and you know, my I deal vision out there is that somebody buys it and, and gives it to somebody who they think should run for office, a really great community advocate who maybe hasn't thought of themselves in, as an elected official, but maybe this will start that conversation. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I do want to talk about now that, you know, you're in the Senate and we find ourselves in such a unprecedented moment in history on so many fronts, right? From the pandemic to the economy, to climate, to the assault on democracy, to the long overdue conversations we're having about race and racial inequality over so many years. So there's so much happening. And I, I love that you on the campaign trail used to say that there's no minimum age for being on the right side of history. And we're, we're there. So tell me, what has it been like so far being in the Senate and being the youngest person in the Senate and the kind of perspective you bring to some of these issues? So I think a lot of people, when they think about state government, think about state troopers with funny hats. They think about long lines at the DMV. They think about paying their income tax. But the, what I've found over the last few years, and I say this with the privilege of serving in a Democratic trifecta, we've got a Democratic governor, a Democratic state Senate, Democratic House of Representatives. We've been able to tackle some really challenging policy issues. And while Washington is talking about problems, I've found that it's actually state governments across the country that are solving them. So if you care about clean air and clean water for the next generation, if you care about the quality of the roads that you drive on every day to get to work or to get to school, if you care about the quality of the classroom when your kid arrives in, in uh, public school every day, well, then most of those decisions actually come down to, to local officials. And what I found, uh, local and state officials, and what I found having served in the state capitol over the last few years is that, like I said earlier, the perspective of younger folks is usually absent from the room where decisions are made. We've got this idea of a representative democracy, but it's not representative at all. Older, white, male, baby boomers dominate the conversation. And I don't solve that problem at all, right? I bring down the age of our caucus room tremendously, but I, part of the book uh, is about how we can build a a government that is more inclusive in terms of who's able to afford to run for office, right? How do we get more women and more people of color and more young people to, to take that leap of faith? Because when we do, I think that we do bring a really valuable perspective into the caucus room. And I'll just close by saying, you know, I've learned a lot from uh, my colleagues who bring in their different experiences. I don't know what it's like to own a mortgage and I don't know what it's like to own a small business. And there are a lot of folks in the legislature who talk about that when we get together and debate about policy. And it's really valuable and I learn from that. And in exchange, what I think I bring into the room is a knowledge about what it's like to try to afford rent, right? There are 34% of Connecticut households are rented, but I think I'm the only renter in the state Senate. Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, I, I talk a lot about what it's like. I, I, I initially served as the chairman of the higher ed committee, and I talk a lot about what sexual misconduct actually looks like on college campuses. These are really thorny topics, but 
you know, some of my colleagues just, they don't understand what consent and affirmative consent does look like and should look like on a 21st century campus. So there's a real exchange of ideas across ages that I think has resulted in some valuable public policy. Yeah. Let's talk about some of that public policy. Like you said, you've been involved in some really amazing stuff. You mentioned already that you were chairing the higher ed committee your first term, and you guys were able to pass a free college act. So tell me about that and why that was so important to you as kind of one of your first priorities. Yeah, this was this was so rewarding. So I was just off of being on a college campus myself. And um, when when leadership asked me what committees I'd like to serve on, I, I asked them for the higher education committee. And I was shocked uh, that I actually had the opportunity to become the Senate chairman of that committee. And, and on day one, I partnered with the House uh, chairman, Greg Haddad, to try to make community college free in the state of Connecticut. Why? Because we know that 70% of jobs in our state are going to require some degree beyond a high school diploma by 2025. But we're nowhere near meeting that goal. We've got to produce 300,000 more graduates in order to meet the workforce needs of, uh, of 21st century businesses here in the state. So we've Tuition at community colleges has been increasing. It's no surprise then that enrollment has been decreasing. This is even before the pandemic. We had to figure out a way to try to encourage more people to get into that classroom and pursue um, higher education. And what's worked so well in many other states is just making community college free, encouraging folks to fill out the FAFSA, get their Pell Grants, and then saying that we in the state of Connecticut will pick up the rest of the tab. And I'm really proud that thousands of students have already signed up to enroll. Uh, it, I, I, it, it is the thing that I think I'm, I'm really most proud of working on. And uh, of course, there were so many other folks who helped to make it happen. But I, I tried to really fight for our generation's voice and, and bring a lot of students into the caucus room and into the committee room to participate in the hearing process so that they could share their story about what it's like to try to afford tuition on top of childcare, to, to wonder where their next meal is going to come from, because they've got to make sure that they're meeting their tuition payment. Yeah, it's just a huge win. So congratulations. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I love this happening around the country, too, that people are trying to find ways to, to make college more affordable, free, if possible, for community college, but just also, you know, those connections between the workforce and education and making sure people really have the skills they need to succeed in those jobs. So it's just, it's a huge success. So thank you. You are, you're now actually chairing the Transportation Committee in the Senate. And it's it's a side question, maybe I will figure out how in two terms, you've been able to chair two really big committees, just getting there, but that, which is awesome. But so you and Senator Majority Leader Bob Duff, another New Dealer, I should mention, you guys just recently announced a $175 million infrastructure plan. You're allocating funding to road resurfacing, highway safety improvements, bridge reconstruction, um, and more. And uh, in that announcement too, you also made the linkage between transportation and the economy and why that was so important. So tell us about this huge plan and, and how, you know, both how you got that done and what you were hoping it's going to do for Connecticut. Yeah, it's such a pleasure working with, with Bob. And I really have him to thank as well as our Senate president for the opportunity to serve in this new role. You know, I think of it under the same bucket though, which is that we can't get our economy growing if people can't get to and from work in a manner that's safe and convenient. Um, I keep on my desk in the Senate a timetable for Metro North. Metro North is the busiest commuter network in the whole country, 40 million rides a year into Manhattan. 
and yet the train has actually gotten slower over the last 50 years, not faster. Anyone who walks by my desk, I show them that 1970 uh, timetable that sits on my desk, and I show them that by every metric we're moving in the wrong direction. We've got to invest in infrastructure improvements like road repaving and better sidewalks, pedestrian uh, infrastructure. But for me, my I think the, the bread and butter of the work on the Transportation Committee is to try to make public transit more affordable, more appealing, and more efficient. It's not just the right thing to do for our economy. It's so critical for our environment. We're 40% of our carbon emissions in this state come from uh, the transportation sector. It's it's bad for, for clean air and clean water when folks are stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic every morning and every night on their way to work. And if we can make the train a more accessible option for them, well, then I think it's going to pay off in, in dividends in the long run. Yeah, this is money for this package that you were able to do with state funding, right? We're also looking, obviously, at some historic, hopefully knock on wood investments from the federal government. We talked about your part of the catalyst for you running for office was Trump being in office. You know, we're now in a totally different world, obviously. I'd love to hear how it's been working with the Biden administration. And in particular, as you're thinking about both the American Rescue Plan, which has already passed and bringing money into your state, and also why it'll be so important to pass things like the the bipartisan infrastructure deal to help you with some of these challenges that you were talking about. Oh my gosh, what a what a world of difference between so I've I've only had two terms in the state senate, one serving under President Trump and one serving under President Biden. And I, it's hard to even describe the difference. I guess I'll start by saying in the Trump administration we were playing defense. We were we were the firewall. We, the states our, our constituents were constantly under attack, constantly under fear, constantly protesting and and being politically active because they felt as though, and they were right, that their lives and their livelihoods and their children's livelihoods depended on it. These days, we're able to, to play offense. We're able to work collaboratively with the Biden team. Debt-free community college was a priority here in Connecticut, but soon we're going to see that program if the Build Back Better plan passes in the full form that it should, brought up to the state level. And it's because, uh, really, I think Dr. Jill Biden has has made community college uh, affordability and uh, retention a priority of that administration. And on the transportation sector, what an exciting time to be a state transportation chair, because finally, it is infrastructure week, and we are primed to see uh, over $5 billion come to Connecticut. I think it's our job at the state level to make sure that projects are shovel ready, make sure that we're investing in the right kind of projects. Infrastructure improvements are not about highway widening, where we just see you know more cars on the road, more air pollution. I, I think that at the state level, we're going to work hand in hand with the Biden administration, with Secretary Buttigieg's department, to make sure that these investments are spent on greener infrastructure, on safer roads for bicyclists and pedestrians, on improved public transit, on electric school buses so that kids don't breathe diesel exhaust every single day as they travel to and from school. It, it's just a, a, a huge weight off our shoulders that now we don't have to be working against what's happening in Washington, but instead can move in the same direction and build off of one another. Yeah, it is night and day. And you talked so much earlier about the importance of state and local government. And it's true. And it's true in both settings, right? I mean, that's what I think people, you know, I've worked with state and local leaders for 25 years now. And 
there was really a recognition under Trump about how important people were because the federal government, particularly as the pandemic hit and the lack of leadership there, there was like, oh, I get it, right? This is state and local leaders are on the front lines of these things. And then I think that that's just been true, even with Biden continuing to um, to be in office, just the partnership, as you were talking about, is you, it takes all levels of government. It's an all hands-on approach to try to tackle these big problems. So I, pre- I really appreciate your perspective on kind of the two different administrations you got to work with. And Debbie, can I jump in and say, you know, I couldn't agree more with what you said regarding people realizing the role that government has in all of our lives. I ran for office because I wanted to help shape public policy, but it turns out that legislating is about 50% of my job as a state senator. Hmm. What I didn't anticipate was the other 50%, which is constituent services. And constituent services were important when I was elected in 2019, you know, getting to work on making sure people connect with the right person at the DMV or connecting them with our Department of Revenue Services to correct a tax discrepancy. But what I found in the course of the pandemic is that people who had never reached out to the government before, people who didn't know that they had a state senator, Mm. people who had never had to ask for help, all of a sudden needed masks and plexiglass and testing and eventually a COVID vaccine. They needed unemployment assistance and rental assistance and small business loans and all sorts of things to help their family and their business stay afloat, to help them stay alive. And what I found actually most rewarding about my job so far is something I didn't know that I would be doing uh, with with so much of my day, which is the constituent services element. Mm. Some of those people didn't vote for me. Some of them probably will never vote for me, and that's okay. Getting an opportunity to serve them. In fact, a lot of our interns that I mentioned, those high school students and college students who had helped us in the first campaign, they came back to help out on the second campaign, but it was the height of the pandemic, and we couldn't really, you know, it felt wrong when everyone was struggling to go out and ask people for votes. So we transitioned our, our high school operation and our college operation to just do COVID check-in calls to seniors who were isolated, to be a, a friendly voice on the other end of the line. And not only did the, the seniors love it, the high school students loved it too, because it, it brought that. them so much joy. So anyways, I'm, I'm going on for too long, but suffice it to say, the constituent services element is one of my favorite parts of this job. No, I love that you talked about that. And it's not something we talk about a lot on the show. So and you know, this is really about what it's like to be a public servant. So I love that you you dove into that. I do. I have a question. Which I'm not I've been trying to figure out how to phrase it. But basically, you know, you represent one of the, I think, the wealthiest Senate district in Connecticut. And one of the things to me that's so interesting and so important about where we find ourselves right now is coming out of the pandemic, you know, how much the inequality, the gaps between access of the haves and have nots, you know, on all kinds of issues, whether it was broadband access or even the health outcomes, frankly, I mean, so much across so many areas, these discrepancies that we knew were there kind of intellectually were so shown, the light was shown so bright on them during COVID. And I'm curious with kind of, you know, with, with that knowledge that you, the place you represent, and obviously where your heart is, which is to help all people, like how, how do you, you know, how do you think about that in terms of, you know, using this moment in time to overcome so many longstanding inequalities that we just have to fix? It's a scary thing. I, you know, our local congressman, Jim Himes, has uh, recently been appointed to chair a committee specifically focused on the rise in economic inequality. And I think it's because Fairfield County epitomizes that problem, both here and across the country over the course of this pandemic. And then long before that, the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. And it became apparent in, in really stark terms where some school districts, many of the ones that I represent, were more easily able to transition to remote learning because they could trust that students had access to technology at home. They had access to the internet. 
in Bridgeport, which is outside of my district, but only about 10 minutes away, the state of Connecticut had to invest in Wi-Fi trailers to, to cover whole city blocks with internet so the kids could learn from home. But even then, sometimes they lacked the technology. So there were investments to bring laptops to every public school student. All of those efforts inevitably fell short because unfortunately, we, we couldn't stand up all the programs that we needed to, to make, to, to close inequalities that have existed for such a long time. But I think we start to close that gap, at least here in Connecticut, by building friendships with our other colleagues and, and you know, some cross-district understanding. My colleague, May Flexer, organized this program when I was first elected where we drew a colleague's name out of the hat and we had to go and spend a day with them in a district that was different than our own. And it was really cool. I, I think I drew uh, Senator James Maroney and got to spend some time in West Haven, which is a community totally different than my own. And James came down to Wilton and we had lunch together and talked about some of the priorities of this area. He met with some of my constituents. We ought to be doing more of that, right? I, I take my colleagues up on any opportunity to visit Eastern Connecticut, which is rural farmland. Uh, I t- and I invite them to suburbia here in the 26th district. And to your point, Debbie, I think we've got to do more suburban and urban exchange yeah. because you know towns like the ones that I live in have built sort of tall hedges, which literally and figuratively shield them from the feeling of responsibility for lifting each other up. But at some point over the last few decades, we've lost track of the fact that towns like suburbs like Westport and Wilton or Weston are no better off if cities like Bridgeport and Norwalk and Stanford are falling behind. Uh, we as a community rise and fall together. And um, there are a lot of folks right now who are falling behind. Yeah. I, I, first of all, Everyone should do that. That should be mandated. That draw a colleague name out of a hat. That's that's my new uh, <laughs> that's my new charge. I'm going to make sure every legislature does that. I think what a fantastic idea it is. It's so important that we understand each other better. We talk to each other differently. And I I find it. You know, I love this being able to do this platform and talk to people from all over the country. It, there's so many things that are in common, right? I mean, if you think about rural and, and urban and, and whatever, but you know, even for example, I, I saw something that you've been talking about a lot, which is trying the brain drain of Connecticut. I think largely from where you live, it's because of the price of housing and other things that just make it very hard to stay there. You know, I'm talking to Molly Gray, the lieutenant governor in Vermont, who's, you know, worried about the rain drain from farms and other places because those jobs are disappearing. They might be different, you know, different lenses through which you're looking at it, but the but the sentiment and the problem remains the same. And I, I wonder if there's other things that you th- have seen as a legislator besides visiting other districts that have been effective in kind of bringing different voices together, finding common ground, because it just seems like that's something we have to work toward as a country. Yeah, you, you zeroed in on like a third rail issue here in Connecticut, which is affordable housing and one that's tough in my district, right? People are very resistant in communities that are accustomed to two and four acre single family zoning to seeing an apartment building go up. But I'll tell you this, I could never afford to live in my district unless there were studio apartments available. Uh, in fact, I remember being at an event and some guy came up to me and stuck his finger in my face and said, you know, who in the world is building these apartments uh, in our community and God knows who's moving in there. And I kind of interrupted him and I said, well, I am. And I think, you know, humanizing it, uh, letting people know that when you build an apartment complex, it's actually teachers and firefighters and police officers and sometimes state senators, people who work in this community and also want to be able to live in this community, gain access through uh, more affordable housing, more diverse housing options. And we've got this law in Connecticut called 830G and communities are constantly striving towards points, points, get, accumulating enough points to show the state that they're building affordable housing. 
And I really like what one of my constituents said recently, which is it's about people. It's not about points. And to the extent that we can remind the sort of political commentators out there that these policies impact families, individuals, come and visit my apartment building and get to know the people who, who live there. I think you might change your tune about affordable housing. It's, it's the same concept, but maybe a different application, but putting a, a face to these to these problems and to these solutions. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's there's one other issue I wanted to make sure we get time to touch on because it's something you worked on um, when you were an intern at the DNC, which is voting rights. I still sometimes am just shocked at where we find ourselves in terms of the assault on democracy and the undermining of voting access and other things in this country right now. You've been trying to promote in Connecticut access to voting. He's making it easier to vote. You've been promoting uh, permanent absentee ballots, which we have here in California, and I am a huge fan of. Uh, you didn't get all you wanted to do this legislature. I'm kind of curious about, is that because there were, there is resistance to some of this? And what are your hopes going forward in terms of trying to um, to make sure that democracy is, is sound and people can vote? So I think people are going to be shocked to find out that in Connecticut, which is a, a pretty blue state, like I said, we now have a Democratic trifecta. We broke that tie in the state Senate. We have some of the most backwards voting laws in the entire country. So much media attention was focused on Georgia, rightfully, for rolling back early voting days. It, it, it's shameful that they are trying to make uh, our democracy less accessible and less convenient. But let's be clear about the fact that in Connecticut, we don't have early voting in the first place. You only have one Tuesday in November to vote. God forbid you're a single working parent or a commuter, a person with disabilities, somebody who isn't feeling well that day. You've got your you've got your one shot. And it's like this across so many areas, access to absentee ballots. In the last election, more than 60% of my constituents participated from the comfort and safety of their own home. That had a lot to do with the pandemic. But they told me that they actually really appreciated the time to go over their ballots slowly, to do a little bit of research and look up the candidates as opposed to feeling the stress to fill in the appropriate bubbles quickly in, uh, in a physical voting booth. And they wanted to know if they'll be able to vote in via absentee ballot into the future. And sadly, the answer is no, not in the state of Connecticut. You need to qualify for an absentee ballot, meeting a few very specific criteria. And those are the big ticket items. But there's a whole host of other reforms that are necessary, some that made it across the finish line and some that didn't. Early voting and no excuse absentee ballots are going to require a constitutional reform. So we've got to get those to the voters to approve in 2022 and 2024. But in the short term, there are some statutory changes that we made. One that drove me crazy. When I was a college student and I wanted to vote absentee, I had to go to the library, print out a form, fill in that application go out and buy 20 envelopes and 20 stamps, even though I only needed one, and send it into my local town hall. Then I would get a paper ballot back to my local mailbox. I had to figure out where that mailbox was, fill it out, buy a stamp, send it back in. It was a cumbersome process for a college student. Not impossible, but certainly not convenient. And when I looked around and asked my friends if they were voting, I saw my friends in Virginia, for example, just open up their computer and request an absentee ballot online. A paper ballot still arrived. That's, I think, important for the integrity of our uh, of our election audits. But there's no reason that the application for an absentee ballot has to be in paper right. form. So uh, we finally changed that this year. We're going to start next year seeing online absentee ballot requests in Connecticut. And it's one of so many areas where we can sort of bring down these bureaucratic barriers and make our democracy just a little bit more accessible. That's important, I think like I said, for commuters, for the elderly, for single working parents. But as the youngest member of the legislature, I spend a lot of time talking about how it's really important for young people 
every elected official talks about young people, but there aren't many elected officials who take the time to talk to young people. And if you if you do that work and go to schools, not just in campaign season, but if you go into classrooms after you're elected to find out what it is they would like to see, young people will tell you that whether it's automatic voter registration, whether it's early voting, absentee ballot requests, there are all sorts of hurdles that sort of hold them back. And I think we we all ought to agree, Democrats and Republicans, anybody who who decided to run for office and do this for with with their life, we all ought to agree that our democracy is stronger when more people participate and not fewer. So surely we should bring down those burdens and make it easier for people to to participate. We're starting to do that work in Connecticut, but we're way behind the rest of the country. Yeah, it's it is surprising actually that Connecticut. I I don't didn't realize that how far backwards Connecticut was on this. So I love that you guys are are working on that. I wanted to say something to you that I read that you said on the day that you were sworn in, because it was so moving to me. And I think it's such like the epitome of this podcast and, and how I feel about public service. You said, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, if it's, but this is how it was reported in the paper. It says, I hope it will be the job of this chamber to reach out to voters who are apathetic or pessimistic or too often do not vote. Let's demonstrate government is a place to come together and that politics, if practiced responsibly, can help people believe in the good of government. I love that. I want to print that out and put it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was that's back from 2019. That's an awesome find. I, I had forgotten uh, not the sentiment, but but the wording. Yeah, you know, at the Capitol, there, I remember that day. There were so many cameras, and it was so easy to feel as though our every move, every amendment, every vote, every filibuster was being closely watched. But I remembered not that long ago being somebody who didn't know the name of their state senator. And now that I, I do have the privilege of serving in the state Senate, I want to try to reach more people who similarly are impacted by state government, but aren't necessarily engaged in state government. Not yet. Anyways, we it, it takes a lot of work to sort of reach out to folks who don't think that politics interests them and, and try to remind them that well, politics might not interest them, the policies that we vote on every day they they really do impact their lives their their happiness their healthiness and uh, and we need their voices to try to build a better state and a better country yeah well i love it and i just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing in connecticut it's you know and how i really think that this book that you're writing and as well as just your stories i mean i think it's going to be inspiring for people for young people to see that you can do this you don't have to wait as you said you know and um and i just am I'm really grateful for your service and for all you're doing there and and the impact you're going to have on your state as well as the country so thanks for being with me to talk today i really appreciate it thanks for having me debbie this was fun thanks for listening to an honorable profession please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots row group produces podcasts I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.